This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, so last Sunday, for those of you who may not know, was the Chicago Marathon, and it was a record-breaking weekend last weekend. The, the men's winner uh, set a new world record for the marathon in a time of two hours and 35 seconds. That means he was running a pace of four minutes and 36 seconds a mile for 26.2 miles. I'm not sure if any of us in here could do that for one mile, yet alone over 26. And so yesterday, uh, yesterday, I set out to beat his world record time. And I did it only for a half marathon. Running at a nine-minute pace, not a four-and-a-half-minute pace, but I did it. I broke two hours. Uh, but also, the, the women's winner, she set a course record, and it was actually the second-fastest time ever run by a woman. And, but, but to be honest, everyone who ran the Chicago Marathon was a winner. Uh, and, and not just because they did something that only a couple percent of people in the world have ever done. They were a winner of the grand prize of incredible pain and suffering when they woke up Monday morning. Amen. I, uh, I ran my first marathon back in May, and Monday I did not move from my recliner. Praise God for a friend who brought me a hot chicken sandwich for lunch that day, bringing it down into the basement to where I was planted on my recliner. But the thing is, like, I knew I was going to suffer. I knew why I was suffering, as did every other runner who ran the marathon last weekend. But that's not always the case, is it? Sometimes we're left wondering why. Why is this happening to me? God, why are you allowing this to happen? We've all been there or know someone who has. Some of you are there right now and you're left asking, why, God? That's true of suffering in in our lives, be it losing a job and not sure how you're going to pay the bills be it infertility, chronic pain or depression, an unexpected medical diagnosis or the tragic loss of a loved one, or something your child's going through. Why, God? It's true of suffering our lives. It's true of suffering in our world. I think as we've watched the events of the last week, we've all been left asking God, why is it that thousands of Israeli and Palestinian civilians, like concert goers and children, are suffering unspeakable atrocities? Why, God? Like, make it make sense. The thing is, suffering doesn't make sense, does it? We can't explain why at least not to our level of satisfaction. But that doesn't stop us from trying. Tim Keller, in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, says that some will take a a historical and anthropological approach explaining how we arrived at the current crisis and the conflict that exists between differing people groups. Some will take a medical approach explaining what is happening inside the human body. 
Uh, some take a, a philosophical approach, uh, explaining the problem of evil like this, that, that if God is all-powerful, he can't be all-good because he allows suffering. And if God is all good, he can't be all powerful because he's clearly unable to prevent and stop suffering. And then some take a a religious approach, explaining your suffering as consequence for sin, consequences for your sin as though you are the one that brought this on yourself. And while that is true some of the time, it is by no means true all of the time. Because oftentimes our suffering feels absolutely arbitrary, doesn't it? And so while being told that suffering is the result of your sin, the result of someone else's sin, the result of the the presence of sin, the fact that we live in a world infected by sin is, in fact, theologically accurate, it feels entirely insufficient and far from compassionate. And it still leaves us longing for an answer as to why. And as we read through the pages of Scripture, we find very little explanation as to why we suffer. God God says very little next to nothing, not, not even giving Job an entire book about suffering, not even giving Job an explanation as to why he suffered. Instead, Scripture seeks to answer a different question, the question of how showing us how to suffer rather than why we suffer, how to respond to suffering, both our own suffering and the suffering of others, how to suffer well, how to suffer for the good of one another and for the glory of God. And that's what we're gonna see in this morning's passage as we continue making our way through the book of Philippians in our series for the good of one another, helping us reframe that question from why to how. And so last week, we we began our time in in this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in the Macedonian city of Philippi, a church that he planted some five to 10 years earlier. And, And if you remember, like he sets the tone for this letter right away in the greeting, stressing a humility that brings about unity. And he follows that greeting with a prayer of encouragement, expressing his gratitude for them, for their their partnership with him and his mission, expressing his affection for them and his desire for them, that their, their love for one another would continue to grow. And he follows that intro with a with a personal update. He's letting them know how he's doing because as we saw last week, Paul's not doing so well, is he? He he's in prison. Again, Uh, this time uh, either in Rome or in Ephesus, we're not quite sure. And so hoping to put their minds at ease, knowing they're worried about him, wondering how he's doing, he, he writes to them in verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That was probably a little more upbeat than you expected someone uh, to be, given that he's writing from a jail cell. So, so why is that? How could that be? Well, it's, it's because putting him in prison 
had the exact opposite effect that the local authorities hoped to have, hoping to silence him, hoping to stop the, the spread of this fire that had started, the spread of the gospel, the spread of this movement known as the way. And, and their plan, their plan backfired on them, right? It's like they poured gasoline on the fire. Now it's just spreading further and faster. And Paul right now from a prison cell, he's trending on Twitter in the first century if that thing existed. And his words, they, they kind of sound like Joseph's, don't they, from Genesis 50? Well, some meant evil against me, God meant it for good. Because when they put Paul in prison, what do you think Paul did? Paul started telling everybody about Jesus, right? He, he says in verse 13, he says, uh, he says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, unlike Shawshank Redemption, where Red told Andy, everyone in here is innocent. I can only imagine how every few hours, right, as a new guard began their shift, he's telling them all about Jesus. He, he, he's telling them how he ended up in prison. He's telling them, like, I'm guilty of everything they charged me with. I did all of that and then some. Until eventually, it says the whole guard knew why Paul was there. He, and he was there, he was there because of Christ, wasn't he? He was there for this treasonous message that Jesus, that someone other than Caesar was Lord. He was there because of Christ. He was there for Christ. He, he was there to bring him praise and glory. But he was also there in a third way. He was also there in Christ. He was sharing in his suffering taking up his own cross and faithfully following after the suffering servant and inviting others to do the same thing, inviting other prisoners, inviting the prison guards. He was doing exactly what he did when he was in prison back in Philippi. Luke, he, he writes about this story in Acts 16 that Paul and Silas, they're in a, in a jail cell. They're, they're praying and singing hymns to God all night. They, uh, and the other prisoners, he says, they were, they were listening to them, and they were, they were learning about Jesus from them. But not only that, he, he says that even a prison guard was listening to them and learning from them to the point that he, he believed that Jesus was, in fact, Lord, and, and he was baptized the next day. He and his, and his whole family, that's just who Paul was. Can't stop, won't stop. I can only imagine, it, like, if, if Paul today went to the dentist, uh, it would be the longest cleaning ever. And not just because first century dental hygiene was atrocious. Uh, it's because the dental hygienist could never work in his mouth because he'd constantly be talking about Jesus to them. That's just who Paul was. And as a result of who Paul was, like word spread, not only within the prison, it says, but within the city as well to all the rest. More and more people hearing about Jesus, not in spite of his suffering, but through his suffering and because of his suffering. Because rather than asking the question of why, Paul asked the question of how. He wasn't worried about why he was suffering. He was only worried about how he could use his suffering for the glory of God and the good of others. 
And then he says, word didn't just spread, it began to spread exponentially. He says in verse 14 that most of the brothers and sisters, these, these other followers of Jesus throughout the city, those who, who had been reluctant to share their faith in, in public for, for fear of what might happen, he says they gained a newfound sense of courage and, and confidence after hearing how Paul responded to his imprisonment. And they were no longer afraid. They were now much more bold to speak the word without fear of what might happen to them, Paul says. And that is astonishing, especially if Paul is in fact writing from Rome under the reign of Nero in the early 60s, given Nero's persecution of Christians which only continued to escalate throughout the decade, especially after the great fire in 64, to the point that one ancient historian writes that Christians were being crucified by Nero and set on fire at the end of the day as torches to illuminate the night. Burning Christians were the Roman street lamps. And he goes on to share something that's interesting. He um. While these people were all out doing essentially the same thing, preaching the same message, the same message as Paul, they weren't all doing it for the same reason. He says in verse 15 that some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. In the latter group, this, the second group, he says they preach Christ from goodwill for the good of others. They preached out of love, love for others, love for those who didn't know Jesus. And that love led them to risk their lives, to lay down their lives for the good of others, knowing full well the danger that they were putting themselves into, knowing that Paul was imprisoned for the defense of the gospel, knowing that they might wind up in a prison cell next to him. And while this second group was asking how they could best respond to this situation for the good of others and the glory of God, the other group, the first group, the former group, they were asking how to best seize the situation, how to best capitalize on this opportunity with Paul finally out of the way for their own good and their own glory. It's, uh, it's kind of like how, remember that team to the north had um, a quarterback for a while and he, he was okay. His name was Aaron something. Well, when the Packers shipped Aaron Rodgers off to New York to play for the Jets, like, we thought the Bears were finally going to seize that opportunity and rise to be the kings of the north, didn't we? Now we're still in the basement. And the only difference is we got company with the Vikings. He says they, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to further afflict me in my imprisonment, kicking him while he's down, adding to his suffering because they were envious of him. They were, they were jealous of, of the way people looked up to him, the way that they respected him, viewing Paul as their rival rather than their brother, right? As, as competition rather than an apostle. It, it was like a, a college football rivalry game, right? Iowa, Iowa State, where the score ends up like seven to five at the end of the game, it's, it's a rough season for us as Iowa fans this year. Maybe a better one would be like Michigan-Ohio State. Is that even a rivalry? Like Michigan's won like the last two or three? At that point, is it still a rivalry anymore? I'm looking at Tim. He's an Ohio State fan. You two are laughing back there. Does Illinois Northwestern even have a rivalry game? It's against themselves. That's the rivalry. 
But in a, in a rivalry game, it, it's, it's the kind where even if you only win that one game all year, it was still a good year. Why? Because at least they lost. And you know, that same sense of envy and rivalry continues to plague the church. Churches treating each other as competition. We've seen it done where other to other churches in, in seasons of transition or turmoil. And I've experienced it myself. It, but not only that, I think also what we see here is that we've seen no shortage of examples of pastors preaching out of selfish ambition to make their own name known. But before we're, we're just pointing the finger at those out there, like we're not immune to envy and rivalry and selfish ambition either. It would be easy for us to take the pantry, for example. This, this thing that we started over a year ago that's all about sharing the love of Christ with those in our community by meeting the physical needs of others as the hands and feet of Jesus. And instead of seeking the good of others and the glory of God, seeking our own good and our own glory. Doing it to make the name of redemption known rather than the name of Jesus known. The same is true of Family Fall Fest in a couple of weeks. And so Paul, in the midst of this, he asks, he asks, so what then? What are we to do with all this? How are we to respond to all of this? And he doesn't respond in the way that you might think. Because he's suffering distorts our perspective. It draws our attention and our affection further away from God and losing sight of what's most important. And so Paul says that the important thing, the most important thing, is that in every way, regardless of the motives, whether in pretense or in truth, that Christ is proclaimed. That's what matters most. What matters most is the glory of God and the good of others, amen? That's what matters most. And in that, Paul says, when that is taking place, I will rejoice no matter what. And about now you might be thinking, so are we just supposed to let it go? Are we just supposed to give him a, a free pass? Please don't hear what Paul's not saying. He's not talking here about abusive pastors He's not talking about false teachers. He's also not saying that we shouldn't confront and call out envy and rivalry and selfish ambition that, that continues to make the church and preaching the gospel essentially a for-profit business with really incredible tax breaks. He's not saying that. He's just saying that all of that is secondary to the gospel being preached, to Christ being proclaimed. But we can expand this because this isn't only true of the church. I think it is also true of our lives. It's true of our world. It, it, it's easy for us to read ourselves into the story, isn't it? And, and when we do, um, we read ourselves into the, the good guy side, don't we? Like, well, we're clearly Paul here. We are in a jail cell right now of some sorts. It's easy to read ourselves into the story believing that we are always the good guy and making them 
making the other, whoever they might be, out to be the bad guy, out to be the enemy. And that's what we're so often prone to do in the midst of suffering, isn't it? And and in reality, it's just us trying to make sense of something that doesn't make sense. But what we do is we use our suffering as justification for abandoning the way of Jesus and going our own way. Jesus, your way's no longer working, so I've got to take matters into my own hands. You said turn the other cheek. That's not working anymore. And we end up doing the right thing for the wrong reason, or worse, we end up doing the wrong thing and believing we did it for the right reason. And rather than seeking the glory and God and the good of others, we end up seeking vengeance and calling it justice, justifying our violence, violence with our words, violence with our actions. We do it as individuals, we do it as a people, we do it as a nation. And that might just be why God has a whole lot more to say about the how than the why. About how to suffer well rather than why we are suffering. And yet Paul says he'll rejoice from a prison cell. But he not only says he's going to rejoice in his present suffering in his current situation, he doubles down on it, saying he will continue to rejoice in his continued suffering. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice no matter what. Why? Well, as Dr. Bonnie Thurston writes in her commentary, she says, Paul cannot choose his circumstances, but he can choose how he will respond to them. Sounds like a loving parent right there, doesn't it? We can't choose our circumstances, but we can choose how we will respond to them. And Paul chose to respond by rejoicing, by continuing to seek the glory of God and the good of one another. He goes on to say, yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and through the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full Courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He's quoting Job here when he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. Job, who if you remember the story, after, man, Job lost everything. He lost his family, his wife and kids. He lost his home. He lost his livestock. He lost his health. He lost it all. And then that's, that's what he said to his so-called uh, friends, these friends of Job, this, uh, this self-appointed, self-imposed uh, accountability group who, who came to uh, comfort Job in his affliction and in his suffering. And they comforted him by confronting him, didn't they? Confronting his supposed unrepentant sin, insisting that it was his sin that led to all of his suffering. And yet, like Job, who, mind you, never did know why he suffered, we know more about his story than he did. God told us more than he told Job. But like Job, Paul Paul didn't need to know why he suffered to know how to respond to his suffering. Knowing that he would be delivered, 
delivered to freedom from a prison cell just as he had been delivered from freedom from sin. All through a supernatural power that was not his own. And, and not by an earthquake, right? That's how he got out of prison in Philippi. No, this was gonna be the power of their prayers and the power of Christ's spirit. See, prayer, prayer held real, actual power for Paul. He believed in the power of prayer. It wasn't just lip service. It wasn't just positive thoughts and vibes. No, he believed that, that prayer could affect change. He believed that prayer could bring about good and that that good came about by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the power of God. And, and this power gave him confidence that he, he would not be ashamed by what he believed and what it is he was preaching. He would not be ashamed by declaring that Jesus is Lord. Having delivered him from, from the chains of sin and delivered him into his kingdom and into freedom. Power brought confidence and that power brought him courage to continue faithfully following the way of Jesus and living in obedience to the words of Jesus. Honoring Christ both in the way that he lived and in the way that he died, saying in verse 21, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. One of those verses I think we, many of us knew coming into this letter. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now again, this is a letter being written to a church, likely Epaphroditus who had come to visit. Paul is the one who took this letter back to Philippi and he's, he's reading it before, before their church that had gathered, these 30, 40, 50 people that had gathered. And when he, he reads this line right here, like this is a mic drop moment for Paul. As good as this verse sounds in the English language, it sounds even better in Greek because there's this really, really beautiful alliteration that I'm choosing not to, do you want me to give it to you? Yeah, okay. It's, it's really good. This beautiful alliteration that he gives. He says, To zen Christos, to apothenin kerdos. Christos, kerdos. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul doesn't fear death, does he? He's not seeking it out, but, but he doesn't fear it. He's not running from it because Paul knows how the story ends. He, he, he kind of cheated. He, he, he looked at the end of the book. He knows how the story ends. Knowing, knowing death has lost its sting, he writes to the Corinthians. And that by being united in Christ, both in his life and in his death, he shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his upon his return. Right, his kingdom arriving in full, all of creation fully restored. Viewing his earthly suffering from an eternal perspective. And by viewing his earthly suffering from an eternal perspective, it makes this the ultimate win-win scenario. Knowing that whether he lives or whether he dies, he can't lose. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, continuing to plant more churches, continuing to point, me, point, point more people to Jesus, knowing that there was still so much more work to do in, in taking the gospel from Jerusalem beyond Judah and Samaria on to the ends of the earth. He had, he had a desire to continue going westward into Spain. Yet which shall I choose? I, I, I cannot tell. To live or to die? 
I'm hard pressed between the two. I can't decide because in either way, I win. But then in this beautiful moment of honesty, he says, but my desire is to depart. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. For that is far better for me personally. And you know, just as God reveals very little about why we suffer, instead showing us how to suffer, he reveals very little about what happens immediately after we die, instead showing us how the story ends. And it ends with Christ's return, a new heaven and a new earth. It doesn't end with our going away to heaven in some disembodied spiritual existence for eternity. No, it ends with heaven coming down and a fully embodied physical existence for eternity. But what happens until then? Until then, in in what some refer to as this intermediate state, we don't really know. We don't really know other than to say, as Paul says here, that it is with Christ as we wait for his return. That alone makes it seem pretty good, doesn't it? It is with Christ and that we're not waiting in some dingy doctor's office with really outdated magazines from like 2015 that you've already read in four other doctor's offices. No, he says that we're going to be waiting in paradise, Jesus says. That's what he tells the thief on the cross next to him. Today you will be with me in paradise. As great as that sounds, to be with Christ, to wait in paradise for Christ's return, even if it's not fully known, right? Um, What Paul knows for certain, he says in verse 24, is that but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. In in baseball, there's this phrase, tie goes to the runner. And the idea is that if you were to tag a runner, at the exact moment they step on the base, they're safe. Tie goes to the runner. And so for Paul, all things being equal, tie goes to whatever brings the most glory to God and good to one another. And for him... That meant continuing on. That meant living. That meant suffering for their progress so that they continue growing to be more like Jesus and for their joy in the face so that in my coming to you again, coming to be with them and to worship with them there in Philippi, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. And if Paul's writing from Ephesus in jail, we know that's exactly what happened, that that he returned to them later on in this third missionary journey story that we read about in Acts 20. But like that right there, I think, captures the essence of the way of Jesus, doesn't it? Humility that brings about unity. Setting aside our desires, laying down our lives and embracing our suffering all for the glory of God and for the good of one another. And the thing is, we don't need to know why we suffer in order to faithfully follow the way of Jesus, do we? We want to know why, but we don't need to know why. No, we only need to know 
that our suffering was never intended by God, was it? It was never his intention, and that upon Christ's return, we will suffer no more. There will be no more tears because there'll be no more death, no more mourning, no more pain, because those former things will have passed away. We know that to be true. And we know how to suffer well. Knowing how to respond to the suffering that exists, our own suffering and the suffering of others. And so how do we do that? I I think we see some things in here. I want to close by sharing five ways that we can learn to suffer well. Suffering for the glory of God and the good of one another. And number one is this. Expect suffering rather than being surprised by it. Expect suffering rather than being surprised by it as though something strange or unexpected were happening to you, as Paul's buddy Peter says. Knowing that things aren't the way they were in the very good beginning. Things aren't the way they were in the garden, and we have a longing for that. Right? We live in a world infected by sin where evil exists around every corner, it seems like. Bad things happen. Things that we can't always explain, things that we may never fully understand this side of glory. We should expect suffering. And number two, embrace your suffering rather than avoiding it. Embrace your suffering rather than avoiding it. Rejoicing in it even as Paul does. Knowing that we are being forged in the fire. We are being formed by the trial and that we are able to use our suffering for the good of others and the glory of God. Shining a light in dark places and giving hope to the hopeless. Expect it, embrace it. And number three, allow others to support you in your suffering rather than suffering alone. Remember that sermon on vulnerability? That wasn't a one and done. Allow others to support you in your suffering rather than suffering alone. Knowing you were, you were never meant to bear that burden alone. Paul didn't. He, he allowed his friends in Philippi to, he invited them into his story to be part of his suffer, his story, part of his suffering by, by being present with them. Right? They sent Epaphroditus to, to be with him there in prison. They were, they were present with him. They, they provided for him. Remember that, that, that prisoners in this time, they had nothing. They were dependent on an outside sources to supply them with everything they needed to survive. And they prayed for him. And so as we love and support one another, how about this? Let's agree to be a whole lot less like Job's friends and a whole lot more like Paul's friends. Less Job friend, more Paul friend. Sound good? Uh, no one wants Job's friends coming over. I think everybody wants the Philippians to come over, though. Let's be more like Paul's friends in providing for one another in their suffering. Maybe providing a meal, providing a ride, providing childcare, whatever the need is, right? That's why we have this loving one another text thread so that when there's a need within the church, it can be met by the church. Let's love one another by providing for one another, by, by, by praying for one another, right? Not just saying you'll pray, but stop and pray. But not only that, if you're like, but, but I don't know what to do and I don't know what to say, ah, I got one for you. Love one another simply by being present with one another. 
Don't underestimate the power of your presence. Keller, he, um, he writes in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he says, the point is this. Suffering people need to be able to weep and pour out our hearts, don't we? We need space. We need room. We need time. And not to immediately be shut down by being told what to do. Don't just jump in and try and fix it right away. Nor should we do that to ourselves if we are grieving. Let's not forget to extend ourselves grace. And he says, a man who lost three sons at various times in his life wrote about grief in his book, The View from a Hearse. The man says, I was sitting, torn by grief, and someone came and talked to me of God's dealings, of why it happened, of hope beyond the grave. He talked constantly. He said things I knew were true, and I was unmoved, except to wish that he would just go away. And finally, he did. But another man came and sat beside me. He didn't talk. He didn't ask leading questions. He just sat beside me for an hour or more, and he listened when I said something. He answered briefly and prayed simply. Quick to listen, slow to speak. And then he left. And I was moved. I was comforted. And I hated to see him go. Never underestimate the power of your presence with someone else who is suffering. You don't need words. And number four, view your suffering from an eternal perspective as Paul did. Knowing how the story ends. Knowing your suffering won't last forever because a day is coming when you will be delivered from it, either in this life or in the life to come. Because Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. And number five, remember that God is present with you in your suffering. You're not alone. Not only are we with you, he is with you. Knowing God will never leave you or forsake you, knowing that Christ is always with us till the end of the age, he is with us through the indwelling of his spirit. Jesus never said that following him would be easy, did he? In fact, multiple times he says the exact opposite, calling us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross daily as we faithfully follow his way in obedience to his words, leading us not down an easy path through a wide gate, but down a very difficult path through a very narrow gate. But where he leads is worth every step of suffering along the way because it's the only way that leads to life. It's the only way that leads to the glory of God and the good of others. And I want us to just sit with that this morning. Let's not rush past this. Uh, in her book, Prayer in the Night, Tish Harrison Warren says that as a church, man, we got to learn to slow down. We need to learn to slow down 
and let the emptiness remain unfulfilled. We need to slow down and learn to be comfortable with silence. We need to be comfortable with mystery, with unknown. And she says, we must make time for grief. Setting aside time for lament, allowing space for those who are suffering. And there are some of you in this room right now. And so how about we just take a hot second and slow down and let God be God. You good with that? Because there's, there's an emptiness that comes with our unanswered questions of why isn't there? An emptiness and uneasiness. And so we're going to spend our time in, in reflection and prayer, slowing down and setting aside time just to allow God's presence to fill the emptiness. It's already there, but I want us to sense it. I want us to believe it. I want us to know it. Allowing God to fill the void. Allowing God to be the answer to our unanswered question. Allowing God to be our yes and amen. Amen. As we are reminded of his presence with us in this place. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to open us in prayer. And then I'm just going to give you some time to sit with God as we, as we sit with one another. Sitting silently with God, allowing the Spirit to stir. Knowing that there is power in prayer. Power to affect change and power to bring about good in our church, in our lives, and in our world. There is no shortage of suffering that we can pray for in this time. And so that's how we're going to spend these next few moments. Does that sound good? Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.